All right. Let's make sure we live. All right. Well, thanks for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. We're continuing on with our uh, Truth for Living study, and we're just going to sort of review. It's been, I don't know, it's probably been, what, four weeks since we've been here, since I've been sick, and uh, we had to cancel several of these. And so we're going to review um, some of the questions and then we'll look at the question that uh, the kids started learning last week and then uh, are continuing to learn this week. So we'll begin with question one. And again, remember what we're looking at regarding the attributes of God with these questions is the goodness of God. And so we asked question one, what is our good God like? And so the answer to that is God is holy, he's loving, he's perfect in all he is and all he does. He's true, noble, just, pure, and praiseworthy. It is because of God that we even know what good is. And, and we're actually going to sort of, sort of draw out from that a little bit today when we talk about the righteousness of God. What is the standard of goodness? It is God himself, and that's what this answer brings about. And then we see Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. One of the things I love about this particular psalm and this particular verse is that the goodness of God is not some abstract principle or some abstract idea that we can sort of set on a shelf as a theological truth, but rather it's intensely personal. The psalmist tells us that we are to personally taste, we are to personally see that the Lord is good, that blessedness comes from finding refuge in him. And so if God is fully good, then our next question is, who is it that gives us all good things? Where does the goodness in our life come from? And so the answer is, who gives us all good things? God gives us all good things. And, and that's important for us to remember. Anything good that happens in your life is a result of the grace of God. God's has showered his people with abundant goodness. Yet it's so easy for us to forget that he is the source of all that goodness. And so we talked about particularly, and actually I got to teach the kids um, this one, Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I love that imagery of God being a sun as he provides warmth as he provides provision as the sun provides the nutrients for uh, the plants to grow and then he's a shield he's a protector um, he's that which keeps us from the dangers that we face in life and then question three how good is god so to what extent is god and he he or what to what extent is god good and that extent is perfect goodness and we saw that particularly in the fact that he is holy He's separate from his creation. He's separate from sin. And that separateness of his, and his holiness shows that he's perfectly good, perfectly pure, and then perfectly committed to his glory. And we spent some time a couple weeks ago discussing why God's commitment to his glory is not a matter of narcissism, but it is a pursuit of the very thing that is the best for us. God's glory brings about the ultimate best for his people. And then, of course, we saw Isaiah 6 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, we've seen all these statements about who God is and his goodness, that he is the standard of goodness, that he 
does and gives all good things, that he is, he is um, that which only does good, and he pursues goodness through his glory for his people. So now we come to a question. And, and before I ask the, the next question, question four, I, I wanted to... I want to talk about something that we often think about. So when we talk about the fact that God is omnipotent, all right, what do we typically mean by that? He's able to do what? Anything, all right? We typically say when we talk about God's omnipotence, he has the power to do anything. What's wrong with that statement? Because can God do anything? What can't God do? Lie or sin? And so our next question here is, does God ever sin? So now I I think it's important for us to keep this in mind because we often, I think, conceive of God wrongly. He, He is this God who can do whatever he wants to. That is true, but he also cannot violate his character. He's a God who always acts in perfect conformity to his character of goodness. And so if God is good, if God is holy, and particularly as we're going to look at today, God is righteous, then what does that exclude as something he's able to do? Sin. He cannot sin. And so the answer, does God ever sin? Well, we could just sort of say this very quickly. No. All right, we'll see you. Good night. I mean, that, that, that is a simple enough answer. But I think it's important we talk a little bit more about that. God's, why is it that God cannot sin, that he never sins? Well, his character and his actions are always righteous. It is impossible for him to treat someone or anyone in a sinful way. His character and his actions are always righteous. And so the verse for this is Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is Righteous in how many of his ways? All his ways and kind in all his works. So what we're going to discuss this evening um, is the righteousness of God. And so we're going, to, we're going to look at sort of defining what righteousness is, understanding what it means for God to be righteous. And then we're going to talk about four particular categories that we discuss regarding the righteousness of God. So let's start by understanding what righteousness is. So when, let me ask you, when you hear the term righteous or righteousness, what does that mean? What is righteousness? How would you define righteousness? All right, good. Okay, Ben? Okay, okay. So, so, you're, so you're looking at it more from the perspective of, of humanity's righteousness, and or, or particularly what we call imputed or alien righteousness that's placed upon us in Christ, which we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, but what does it mean for God to be righteous? I mean, first of all, do we agree that God is righteous? Okay, so what does that mean? All right, he's holy. So does righteousness then equal separateness from, so it equals separateness from sin, all right? I think that, that that's true, but that's, that's, that's not all that is referred to with righteousness. Okay, and that's a great way of answering it. Totally true to his character and attributes. 
in, in one sense, we can talk about the righteousness of God as his consistency with who he is. Now, now let me explain what that means. And I think to do that, I think it's helpful for us to talk about the two main words used in the scriptures to describe righteousness. We'll look at it, first of all, in the Old Testament. Now, the righteousness, the term righteousness in the Old Testament um, is, the tra- is, uh, is the word, the Hebrew word, tzedek, all right? Um, what does tzedek mean? Well, it means that it's very base idea to be straight, um, and it refers to that which forms a normative standard. So if you think about, um, for instance, I, I remember years ago, Jim McGee isn't here today. He's the roofer. He would know more about this. But I remember years ago when I was in high school, <clears throat> my father decided it would be good for me to get a job and work exterior c- construction one summer in high school. yippee ki all right? I was real excited about that. And so we went up uh, and had this big house that we were doing work on in, in Erie. And I remember we were running uh, shingles. And one of the things that we would do to make sure that the shingles were straight is we would take a chalk line and, and run it out. And we already had the, uh, the tar paper down and we'd drop that chalk line. And what was important for that chalk line to be the guide in which that we kept things straight was that the chalk line had to be what? Straight. And if the chalk line wasn't straight and that was the standard upon which we were looking at, we would get to the end of the run, and guess what would happen? Instead of the shingles going straight, the shingles would go like this, or they'd go like this, or they'd go like this. If they went like that, something really wrong went on. But so you, so you see sort of how the idea of straightness becomes the standard. That's why it's often used to describe a, a rod or a measuring rule. That's sort of the concept of Sedek in the Old Testament. So when it speaks about the righteousness of God, it's speaking about the fact that God is straight or that he, it, that he conforms particularly to an ethical or moral standard. And now what we're going to talk about, it's not just that he conforms to the standard, but that he is the standard. And we'll talk about the importance of that in a second. So that's the term in the Old Testament, Sedek. In the New Testament, it's diakusia, uh, uh, I'm sorry, diakosune, all right? Um, diakosune is the most common word for righteousness in the New Testament. And the New Testament term comes from the legal world. So it's more of a, of a, a technical term used within the court system in Rome. And it refers to the quality or state of being just or acting equitably. So the quality or state of being of being just or acting equitably. Um, just actions are produced by someone whose moral character and ethical actions conform to a standard. So when we talk about righteousness, in the very broadest sense, it refers to conformity to a standard. Now, it's important that we understand this. God does not merely conform to a standard. He is the standard. Now, why would there be a problem with saying that God conforms to the standard? So I want you to really think, all right? Why would it be problematic to say that God conforms to a standard? Okay, so... Right. Teresa, what were you going to say? Right. 
So, that, so if, if God conformed to a standard, then that meant that, there was, that that standard came from someone else or the standard itself stood over God. All right? And that would mean that God is no longer the supreme being in the universe. But we know that the scriptures make it abundantly clear that God is the supreme being. There, is there anyone greater than our God? No. So to say that God is righteous and then to say, well, he conforms to a standard is incorrect. Rather, he is the standard. And then is it correct then to say that he does conform to the standard of which he is? And the answer is yes. So when we talk about the righteousness, it, righteousness of God, it is, as Joe had mentioned, God's conformity to his own character and nature. He is the standard. So, again, if, if there was some, some sort of external or nebulous standard that God conformed to, then whatever, wherever that standard came from or even that standard itself would stand over God as supreme. I think it's also important for us to recognize that God's righteousness and his glory are really one in the same thing. Um, John Piper talks about this in particular um, to, to discussing what's happens, what's, what Paul's point is in Romans chapter 9. Now, Romans chapter 9 is a very difficult passage, and there's, there's things there that uh, I thought about maybe we should get into involved into a deep dive of Romans chapter 9, and I'm like, I'm just not going to have the time tonight to get, get through that. But one of, one of the main things that, that Paul's argument there is, is that God is, is completely free to do as he, wa- as he desires. And that in that freedom, whatever he does is righteous. And particularly one of the things that he brings about is that through God's pursuit of his righteousness, his acting in righteousness, what that actually does is magnify his own glory so that God is glorified both in the salvation of the sinner and in the condemnation of the sinner, that God has the right to do both things. That's the main point of what Romans chapter 9 is saying, and that in both of those things, God is glorified. And the point that Paul says is, we don't have the right to point at God and say, you're not acting righteously because God always acts righteously. And in his righteous actions, he brings glory to himself. So I'm quoting Piper here. He says, Paul conceives of God's righteousness as his unswerving faithfulness always. So this means in in every action, at every moment, he is always preserving and displaying the glory of his name. That is what his righteousness is about. His unswerving faithfulness to preserve and display, always to preserve and display the glory of his name. His glory, or that which makes up the whole of his divinity, is the standard of righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Paul's argument throughout the entire book of Romans, and we're going to look at this in just a second, Paul's argument throughout the entire book of Romans is that we are missing something. What is it that we don't have? Righteousness. And so when he comes to Romans 3 and he says we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we could substitute there, because they're the same things, the righteousness of God. Which brings us then the fact that the gospel, or the good news, is a message about God's righteousness. 
Romans 1.17, for in it, that is the gospel, so Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed. We talked about this Sunday morning. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. How does the gospel provide the power of salvation? Because in it, the what of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and then here we have this key point, the righteous shall live by what? By faith. A few things to note here about this, about this passage. There is no other righteousness. There is no other standard but God's. Again, the gospel proclaims the righteousness of who? God, the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of man, not the righteousness of some external standard. It is God himself as the standard. And then it speaks particularly to the fact that the message about the righteousness of God is that righteousness or those who are just, they find that righteousness through what? Through faith. So the message of the gospel, the good news, is that God's righteousness is available to those who have faith, those who believe. Now here's the problem. So Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Wonderful message. Why is that message so important? And he goes on in Romans 1.18, because God's wrath is revealed against everyone who is ungodly and what? unrighteous, particularly the unrighteousness of men, and in their unrighteousness, what do men do? Suppress the truth. The problem with humanity is that the good news of the gospel is that we suppress that good news because we are unrighteousness. We, we are unrighteous. And in, particularly, in particular, that unrighteousness comes from this desire to live ungodly or to ungod our lives, to want to live apart from him as the standard. What standard do we want to live by? Our own standard. And that's the world we live in today, isn't it? The world we live in today is a perfect description of unrighteousness. Saying that we want to live according to the standard we have set. And, and I think it's important we, we recognize that the world is no longer trying to guise this in some sort of sense of religion. They're just sort of live however you want to. Live and let live, right? There's no consequences for your actions. There's no consequences for your sins. You sort of do you, I'll do me, and just sort of let everything be. In fact, not only that, we need to celebrate that which is clearly against God's word. We're in, at the end of Pride Month which is a celebration, a pride, a proudness, a proudness, that's not a right word, a pride of that which goes directly against the righteousness of God. Because what standard are we wanting to set up? Our own. Now listen, it's not just that homosexuality and, and transgenderism and, and everything that's involved in the LGBTQIA plus community is unrighteous. You know what else is unrighteous? To seek to live a life in your own self-righteousness. Because what, what does the Bible say about our righteousness? Does our righteousness meet the standard? No, it's a filthy rag. 
And so the same unrighteousness that exists in the world that's celebrating this new freedom and this new standard, that same unrighteousness exists in people who sit in pews and trust in their own righteousness because the standard is not ourselves. There truly is no difference between someone who lives, goes and wants to live their life in debauchery and sin and someone who wants to live their life based upon a standard that they have conceived of. Both of them are rejecting the standard of righteousness, which is God himself. So Paul concludes Romans chapter 1 with this statement. This is the problem with humanity. We know God's, what type of decree? Righteous. We know God's righteous decree. We know that those who practice such things, and there, Paul, at the end of there, he's, he's dealt with idolatry. He's dealt with homosexuality. He then deals with every conceivable type of sin. And those who practice such things, we know that we deserve to die. Because it doesn't meet the standard of God's righteousness. But knowing all these things, not only do we do them, but what do we do? We give approval to those who practice them. This is Pride Month described 2,000 years ago. And it is a complete abrogation of the standard, which is God's own righteousness. So again, God does not merely conform to a standard. He is the standard. And then as we just saw in sort of a transition to this next statement, God's righteousness then demands his what? His wrath. His judgment. Look at what's said in Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's what type of righteousness will be revealed? Righteous judgment will be revealed. The point that Paul is driving home here is that it would be unrighteous for God not to punish sin. Now, that's, that's a point that we need to really think about. It would be unrighteous for God to not punish sin. Since God always acts righteously, then what does that mean he will do? Punish sin. God's wrath is sure. And as we continue in unrighteousness, what Paul is saying is all we're doing is storing up more of that wrath as we continue to persist in rebelling against him. So we have a great problem. God is the standard of righteousness. Mankind suppresses that truth, wants to live according to their own standard, ungodding their lives, living independent of him. And then that provokes God, because he's righteous, to bring about his wrath. So how then can Paul say... In Romans 1, that he is unashamed of the good news. What's the good news in that? The answer is the cross. It is the cross that upholds God's 
righteousness. Because on the cross, God is just in that he provides his wrath on sin and he is just in that he also provides his righteousness for all those who trust in the one who hung on the cross and those who trust in Christ. This is what he says in Romans 3, 25 through 26, that Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation or satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. Right? The cross and faith in the cross work of Christ brings satisfaction before God. Why is this done? To show God's what? Righteousness. Because he's passed over sins. How can he pass over sins in the past and how can he continue to pass over sins? Because he has in Christ been righteous by bringing his wrath upon Christ and then justifying or declaring righteous all those who trust or who have faith in Christ so that he might be just or righteous and the justifier or the one who makes righteous those who have faith in Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel is good news. Because it is only through the cross that the righteousness of God is truly upheld. God can't just let his mercy over or his grace overwhelm his wrath. He can't allow his characteristics to make him unrighteous. It would be unrighteous for him to not punish sin. So he provides a way wherein sin is punished in Christ on behalf of all those who trust in him. That's why the cross is central. And that's why we see then that faith in Christ provides God's righteousness to the believer. That's why he says in Romans 3, 22 through 24, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for how many who believe? For all who believe. This statement is remarkable. We've just talked about how God himself is the standard of righteousness and that we must meet that standard, but we don't. But then Paul says that that standard, that righteousness, the righteousness of God, the only righteousness that exists is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. There's no distinction. Listen, we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then we are declared or justified, declared righteous or justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. This is good news, isn't it? This should thrill our souls and our hearts. When we see a righteous God who always acts righteously, he has in his divine wisdom provided a way to save unrighteous sinners and not in one way, shape, or form compromise his own, his own righteousness. What a great God we have. And so the gospel is the message of the righteousness of God. It's interesting if you read about the conversion of Martin Luther. 
it was Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and his understanding of that verse that really brought about a complete change in him. Because he always viewed the righteousness of God as the wrath of God. And so for him, not understanding that faith, that the just shall live by faith, or the justified shall live by faith, not understanding that aspect because of his upbringing in the Roman church, that had taught him over and over again that he had to atone for his sins by keeping the sacraments. He had to do penance. He had to do all sorts of things to try to take care of his unrighteousness. Over and over again, when he would look at the righteousness of God, it was for him something that beat him down. But when he came to understand justification by faith, that term then became a source of, of light and hope for him. Because the righteousness of God was no longer a fearful thing. It was something he possessed by faith in Christ. And so when we talk about the righteousness of God, it is for those of us who are in Christ by faith, it should be a glorious thing because we are righteous in Christ. We meet the standard, not that we have done it, but that Christ has done it on our behalf. So the gospel, really, at its heart, is an understanding of the righteousness of God. Now, quickly, I want to discuss four aspects of God's righteousness. Now, I'm uh, getting these from an article uh, that was really helpful uh, for me in understanding the righteousness of God from the Gospel Coalition, written by Fred Zaspel. So if you wanted to check out the article, you can just go to the Gospel Coalition, tgc.org, and then type in either Fred Zaspel or the righteousness of God, and you'll find these four things here. I've sort of changed, uh, changed one of the terms because it was sort of an antiquated uh, term that he had. So um, theologians typically talk about God's righteousness in four particular arenas, and so I want to talk about that very quickly. The first <coughs> excuse me, is the idea of God's legislative righteousness. Now, what this describes is that God demands righteousness of his creation through law. Um, So again, when when we look at how God reveals himself to humanity, we know that he does it through nature, but more particularly, he, he primarily reveals his nature through what? His word. And particularly the law which is given to reveal himself. Now, in revealing himself, what is he revealing? He's Because reve- God is perfectly righteous. So when God reveals himself, and particularly when he gives his law, it is a reflection of his righteousness. And so we see that, that God demands righteousness of his creation through the law. He legislates it in that particular um, instance. So Deuteronomy 4, 7 through 8, Moses says, There is no nation, no great nation, that has a God so near to it as Yahweh, our God, is to us whenever we call upon him. And then notice what he says. There's no other nation that has statutes and rules so what? Righteous. So all this law I set before you today. Moses is challenging Israel and saying, listen, you are given that which reveals the righteousness of God. The law is given to show you who he is. Now again, the law was the law ever given as a means for our righteousness? 
It was given to teach us something. What does the law teach us? We're unrighteous because no one can keep the law. But yet, nonetheless, the law is given to reveal the righteousness of God. Again, Psalm 99.4, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And the point here is that God, in revealing himself, particularly to the people of Israel, provided for them an understanding of that righteousness of who he is. Psalm 119, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your what? Rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. The word of God, which Psalm 119 is primarily concerned with, describes that those rules and those regulations given in God's law are given to reveal his righteousness, that all his law is right. And again, Psalm 119, 144, your testimonies are righteous, what? Forever. And the righteous testimonies of God are that which give us understanding so that we may what? Live. So, you see, when we neglect the word of God, when we neglect that which God has revealed about himself, we are neglecting the means by which we know what it is to be righteous. That's why the word is so essential in the Christian's life. So, legislative righteousness. Secondly, we speak of retributive righteousness, that God inflicts punishment for unrighteousness in his creatures. And this goes back to that idea that it would be unrighteous for God to not judge sin. Psalm 96, 13, before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in what? Righteousness. And the peoples in his faithfulness. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. Since indeed God considers it just to or righteous to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Right? God's final judgment on sin is perfectly righteous. In fact, it would be unrighteous for him to withhold it. And not only does God provide judgment for those who reject his righteousness, but we also see that in his discipline, he rightly judges his people. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And then I know that in faithfulness you have what? Afflicted me. What a, what a statement of faith. So that God comes to his people and he disciplines them, afflicts them for the purpose of turning them back to living a life in accordance with his righteousness. Then we see his redemptive righteousness. God's redemption of sinners conforms 
with his righteousness. And we already discussed this a little bit, but Isaiah 45, 21 through 22, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. I am a righteous God and a what? And a Savior. So God is perfectly consistent with his righteousness as a Savior. And there's no other Savior besides him. And so the message is, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. In fact, John says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And that could also be translated righteous. To do what? To forgive and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All. And then finally we see, we speak of his remunerative righteousness. That God rewards righteousness in his people. The scriptures talk about how God will give rewards for his people who live in righteousness. Hebrews 6.10 For God is not unjust or unrighteous so as to overlook your work of love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The point that Paul is ma- or the writer of Hebrews is making, which, by the way, I'm not going to go into the length right now, but I am now convinced that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. Um, if you want to know why, I can describe it to you later. Anyways, um, the point that the author is making is that it would be unjust for God to not see and recognize the actions of service that his people have done. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 8 Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, what will he do? He'll receive that back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Again, God is saying he rewards those who do good. And in James, James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive what? The crown of life. And Now, here's the thing. Why does he receive the crown of life? It's not necessarily because he has earned it because of his righteousness, but rather he he's, will receive the crown of life because what has God done? He's promised it. This is amazing because if God makes a promise and then doesn't keep it, then would he be righteous? No. So God in his righteousness rewards because he's chosen to do so. There's nothing compelling him to do it other than his own pleasure to make the promise to his people that he'll provide the crown of life for those who love him. And of course, we know in the book of Revelation, what do we do with those crowns? We throw them at Jesus' feet, knowing that Any good in us is a result of his grace. So, the righteousness of God, a vast uh, subject. I doubt that I even scratch the tippy tip of the surface of the depths of the righteousness of God. But our God is truly righteous in all he does. He cannot sin. He'll never treat anyone with with sinful actions because he is righteous in all that he does. And he is righteous in all that he is. And he gives 
that righteousness to those who trust in Christ. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a righteous God and that we can be declared righteous by faith in Christ. Lord, if there's someone here tonight who's either uh, in person, Father, someone listening online, or maybe later on someone will be listening to this sermon, I pray, Father, that they would cry out to Christ, that they would turn to him as God commands all the ends of the earth to turn to him and be saved. There's no other God who can save. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is. Father, take your word, apply it to our hearts and lives. Encourage us, strengthen us in your word. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.